Hey there, everyone, and welcome to Twin Movies. I'm Ben Phelps, and I'm joined by my usual buddy in banter, Gabriel Dalric, who clearly sounds like Bane. Now, every year, Hollywood releases two movies based on the same idea. So we ask the big question, as always, which movie did it better? Now, we're into our third twin movie session in this COVID-19 pandemic era, and today we'll be reviewing two classic twin movies about a prophecy in which solar flares threaten the end of the world. It's Knowing versus 2012. Let the apocalypse begin. So, Gay, before we start, I must say, I think in this COVID-19 era where people are working from home or doing school from home, Everyone's become a handyman, and if you hear a, an array of lawnmowers or chainsaws or hedge clippers outside, I apologise in advance, but this is the way that people are channeling their apocalyptic fears. Okay, fair enough. I'm actually hedge clipping as I record this, so. Oh, very nice. Is it like a topiary plant, perhaps in the shape of a giraffe or an elephant? Um, I'm using uh, my hedge clippers to make a giant bust of Nicolas Cage uh, screaming as the bees descend upon him. <laughs> That's so on brand for you. It's so on brand. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Now, let's kick off this episode with an overview of these twin movies and a flashback to our first encounter with them. So, on the 20th of March, 2009, Knowing was released. And here's its synopsis on the Internet Movie Database. MIT professor John Kostler links a mysterious list of numbers from a time capsule to past and future disasters, and sets out to prevent the ultimate catastrophe. So, Gabe, did you originally catch Knowing when it was released at the cinema? And what was that experience like? Uh, Ben, I did. uh, And I recall it being reasonable. Actually, it's one of those movies where I only really remember one sequence making a huge impression on me, and I'm sure we'll talk about that sequence later. Um... But uh, I guess it was, you know, because it's an, it was a, I guess because it's a film that was shot in Australia, it was kind of particularly interesting uh, to go and check out. And also, this was still in, at that stage of Nick Cage's career where he wasn't just pumping out uh, DTV revenge movies. So he was still kind of an interesting actor to, to, to. To follow. That is not to say that he doesn't occasionally do the good a good movie now, but back then uh, it seemed like there was a whole bunch of good reasons to see it. Yeah, I originally caught it in Sydney at the cinema. I was inspired to see it after Alex Proyas's I, Robot, which I really enjoyed, which I think was in 2004. And Alex Proyas had this interesting career up until then where he had done the famous slash infamous film The Crow in which Jason Lee died on set. Then he does Dark City, which has also been featured in one of our Twin Movies episodes, which was Dark City versus The Matrix. So if you haven't heard that podcast, listeners, go back into the archives because they're both great films. But nonetheless, Gabe and I put them up, you know, head-to-head to see which one came out on top, and they both did different things very well. So Dark City is a really interesting film. He then does a very small Australian film about like a rock band in the Sydney suburbs and then he does I, Robot with Will Smith. So he was going back to his science fiction roots in recent films. So I was really jazzed for this film and as you say, it was the era when Nick Cage 
we're still in the wake of films that we love like The Rock and Con Air where he was still a Hollywood leading man. But is it fair to say he was just slightly dipping at this point? Uh, Ben, that was actually uh, Brandon Lee, not Jason Lee, who tragically died on the set of uh, The Crow. But anyway, I digress. Um, Yeah, 2009 for Nick Cage was, I guess, sort of on the downslide of his leading man career. You know, he had just done the second National Treasure movie, um, which was kind of a successful franchise, but he had some sort of duds with the uh, sort of famously terrible Wicker Man, uh, Ghost Rider, um, uh, Sorcerer's Apprentice. I think that was quite a big flop. Um, But he hadn't quite hit that period of just, you know, uh, non-stop DTV, you know, Frozen Ground, Tokarev, Outcast, uh, The Runner, all of these movies you've kind of never really heard of, um, though I've watched and, you know, uh, you're probably better off just skipping most of them. Except for probably maybe Mandy and Colour Out of Space. They're both excellent. Yeah, those films you mentioned, National Treasure and Ghost Rider, they're not great films, but they at least were big-budget studio films. He was still a leading man opening films at the cinema. But around this time, I think it was when he made that film Bangkok Dangerous, didn't he? And that was the beginning of the slide. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's not a not a particularly great movie. I mean, you know, Nick Cage is still capable of greatness, but maybe he's just paying off all them dinosaur bones he bought. Nick's got to pay the bills. Okay, so later on the 30th of November 2009, the movie 2012 was released. And here's its synopsis from the Internet Movie Database. A frustrated writer struggles to keep his family alive when a series of global catastrophes threatens to annihilate mankind. So, Gabe, walk me through when and how you first watched 2012. Uh, Ben, I thought I had seen this at the movies, and I may well have, but on re-watching it this time, I realised that I had mistaken huge chunks of this movie for that other Roland Emmerich movie, the day after tomorrow. Um, <laughs> so it was kind of really confusing to watch because I kept waiting for like Dennis Quaid to turn up and he's not in this one. And there was other things that I, it, it, I, I, yeah, it was really weird. I might've been drinking for that five years between when day after tomorrow and 2012 came out, which could have been kind of confusing. Weirdly, the most indelible memory I have of 2012 is the trailer which was the two monks atop Everest or whatever and the giant tsunami wiping them out. But apart from that, I really didn't recall much about the movie until I rewatched it. You know, there's this wonderful era in your movie watching game, which you refer to as the booze years. Hey, it's still going. <laughs> it's still going. But there were the heavy booze years. <laughs> oh, sure. And the great joy for you is that whenever you watch a film, which you saw in that window of time, you're experiencing it all over again. You're like... Guy Pierce from Memento, basically reliving each film for the first time. Or maybe Adam Sandler from 52 Dates, or I should say Drew Barrymore. From 51 Dates. Uh, yeah. I mean, often I joke about, oh, wouldn't it be amazing to be able to revisit something like The Godfather and watch it for the first time again? Um, well, I mean, I've seen that enough times that that's impossible, but there's certainly a whole bunch of, yeah, kind of, uh, I don't want to say shittier movies, but definitely sort of more B-picture movies that I might have just thrown on once while shit-faced back then, that, yeah, totally, I can, I, can, I can re-watch them and rediscover the joys of, you know, something like 2012. Well, I discovered the joys of 2012 for the first time 
uh, on video on demand, especially for this podcast. So it wasn't a rewatch for me. It was a virginal experience. And I didn't see it at the cinema because I just thought, oh, no, this is just Roland Emmerich doing disaster porn turned up to 11. Like it was everything I'd seen from the movies of Independence Day and The Day After Tomorrow and so on and just amped up. And I was not interested at all. And around this time, I recall that the phrase disaster porn became really common. And I thought, yeah, you know what? I don't need another CG mash fest of famous icons around the world exploding, being swamped in water. So I gave it a miss. I gave it a pass, a hard pass. But I watched it. I did it for the team. I watched it especially for this podcast. And it wasn't a memorable experience. In fact, I think it took me two or three sit-downs to actually get through it because I was pretty bored. So you watched it in chunks? Yep, I did. As the world was exploding and being destroyed at a rapid rate, I slowed that destruction down and compartmentalised the experience, hoping to try and offset my disdain for the film. And it actually did help. And I actually found I was able to enjoy the third act, which we'll get to in our review, in isolation. Ah, interesting, interesting. Yeah, so before we do that, why don't we jump into a review and a comparison of these twin movies with a shallow dive as to how we got there. So let's start with Knowing. Now, Knowing is quite interesting, actually, because this film actually originated originally from a novelist in 2001, Ryan Douglas Pearson, and he actually approached the producers of this film, Todd Black and Jason Blumethal, with this idea about a time capsule from the 1950s being discovered, and upon opening it, it revealed fulfilled prophecies, and the last prophecy being E.E., and spoilers if you haven't seen Knowing already, but E.E., which is like the last two characters after a string of numbers, is revealed to mean everyone else, as in like after a series of tragedies in which people are killed in the movie, E.E. stands for the rest of the world. Anyway, so the producers liked the concept and bought his script, and they were set up at Columbia Pictures. And interestingly, both the directors Rod Lurie and Richard Kelly were both attached at some stage, but eventually the film went to turnaround. And that's interesting to me because I can actually see a Richard Kelly version of this film, which I'm sure he would have rewritten in his own unique way, but he himself has already dealt with essentially two films about the apocalypse, Donnie Darko and Southland Tales. So maybe it was a case that his pitch for the project was too weird. But nonetheless, director Alex Proyas became attached to direct in February 2005. And then everything sort of started snowballing from there. And his pitch to make the film was going to be, it's The Exorcist, but melding it with realism and a fantastical premise. So that's how we got there with this film. Wait, 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 Ben, wait. The Exorcist? Does any of that remain? No, I don't think so. But that was the original vision, which is always interesting when someone has the pitch for a film and whether in the creation of the film for the rewriting, production, post-production, including editing, whether any of those seeds of inspiration remain. Let's save that, Gabe. Okay. Let's just sort of park that to see whether Proyas's vision actually you know, came about with the final version of the film. Let's jump then to the origins of 2012. For those 
who aren't aware of the filmography of Roland Emmerich, why don't you just quickly summarise, Gabe, the disaster porn in his internet movie database biography? I mean, I suppose Roland Emmerich is most famous for a run of movies he had in the uh, 90s, uh, Universal Soldier, Stargate, and then his huge blockbuster Independence Day Um they sort of solidified him as the sort of destruction king. Um, after that, he made what did he make? The Patriot, Day After Tomorrow, Ten Thousand BC. Did you mention Godzilla? Oh yeah, of course. Which is sort of like a, a was a huge disaster. <laughs> I think nobody nobody liked that. Um, and um, I guess all of those sort of had diminishing returns. I mean, personally, I quite like The Patriot. It's um, an incredibly stupid hugely historically inaccurate movie, but a good bit of fun. Um, And then since then, what has he made? He's made... uh, White House Down. White House Down, which we've talked about. And he made a sequel to Independence Day, which the less said about, the better. And most recently he made Midway, which I think think was quite a big flop. I don't even know if that was released here. Anyway, um, but, but, you know, Universal Soldier, Stargate and Independence Day... Three pretty damn solid movies, quite a good run. Yeah, exactly. The guy basically became a huge success after those first few films, but it was really Independence Day that set the world on fire with those incredible images, which were in a pre-CG era before computer graphics became ubiquitous, where we saw the White House blow up, a model of the White House blow up. And up until then, we probably in film history hadn't seen as many instances where we'd see iconic monuments destroyed. There's, of course, the spoiler alert for Planet of the Apes, the famous last shots of Planet of the Apes where we see this sort of like dilapidated, uh, fallen version of the Statue of Liberty. But it wasn't as common, and that film really brought disaster porn, I guess, to the fore where we saw our real world being destroyed in a very naturalistic way. Titanic was somewhat similar in the same idea. So the origins of this is that there's actually a book by Graham Hancock called Fingerprints of the Gods, and that sort of was the inspiration for Emmerich behind 2012. He always had said he wanted to do a biblical flood movie, but he never had the right hook. And then we started reading Fingerprints of the Gods. He thought, ah, okay, this can be my... What's the best word? My opus, my definitive world of destruction. And funnily enough, he actually had said when making this film, much like when David Fincher made, uh, I think was it Zodiac? No, when David Fincher made the remake of The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, Fincher at the time said, I want this to be like the best and my last serial killer film. And similarly, Roland Emmerich thought, I want this to be my last and my best film about destruction. Um, As it turns out, he actually went back on that with White House Down and Independence Day Resurgence, the sequel. But that was his objective from the start. So that's sort of how we got there. These films seem to have been created independently, uh, don't share any DNA of any sort. And once again, it's just a case of serendipity that we ended up with two films with the same concept. So let's jump into a review, Gabe, of these films. Let's start with Knowing, which was released first. Did you like it? What worked for you about this film? And what didn't float your boat? 
Ben, I I like this movie just fine. I think it's a entirely fine movie. Um, it it does everything fine. I have no complaints about this movie. One thing I love about this movie, though, it ends with the world completely being destroyed. Spoilers. It's not like these other disaster movies that always end with some sort of you know um, humanity floating about on top you know on a in an ark or or whatever. This movie has the big big pair of swinging nuts to absolutely just fucking kill everybody. I respect that. Yeah, tell me what I guess did you most like about this film? You've used the expression with some of your reviews where you know it's pleasant, it's fine, it's okay. Well, tell me what worked for you and then what countered that that didn't work at all. So, okay, you like the ending, great. Did you find the premise uh, unbelievable? Did you like the twist at the end? I see what you're saying. Do you want to talk the listeners through the ending of the film? Because that film, the ending was criticised and complimented in the same breath. Like you said, a big pair of brass nuts to destroy the world but there's a twist before that, which I'd love for you to describe to the audience as to who these mysterious strangers are that keep appearing around the son, Caleb, who's the kid who's the son of John, played by Nick Cage. Okay, actually, this is one of those funny things. I don't know if anyone remembers or watched the show Buffy from the 90s. I'm sure everyone did and does. But these dudes all look like James Masters' character of Spike walking around, they're these sort of blonde-haired, trench-coat-wearing doofuses who are sort of hunting uh, the boy Caleb, but they turn out to be like, I guess, angels who ride sort of intergalactic light spaceships. It's incredibly stupid. Uh, That is not the part that I like. I think think if you were making this film now, you'd probably redesign them. But so they're, they're... you think they're, I guess you think they're the antagonists or something, but it turns out that they are trying to get Caleb and what's the girl's name? I forgot. The the girl. Um, to blast them into some sort of what, like, heaven-like galaxy where they will, I guess, repopulate the world? That part's kind of not clear to me. Is that what it is? Yeah, I think so. The girl's, her name is Abby. Right. Uh, and the idea is that Caleb and Abby have been chosen. The films both share, both 2012 and knowing, this idea of essentially arcs, uh, like an Adam and Eve situation where you basically take people from the planet with the objective of trying to repopulate the species down the track after the apocalyptic event has occurred. The, the characters, you're so right, they totally resemble Spike with the peroxide blonde hair, the kind of high cheekbones, very tall, lanky, broad shoulders. A bit like the uh, lead singer of the band. Who? What's that song? Oh, the, the Verve. Um, what's his name? I've just drawn a blank as oh, well. Richard something or other. You know who they also look like? The, the guy from Stone Temple Pilots. Like, they look really goofy. Yeah, exactly. Almost to the point it yanks you out of the movie. It's like, what the, what the heck? They... Maybe they should have just looked like normal people. Yeah, totally, totally. But that's the premise, basically. I think what's confusing is that in looking at the background notes to this film, it would appear that they're angels, but they kind of function more like aliens. Essentially, they're like benevolent aliens. A bit like in that film Contact. Uh, I hadn't thought of this until right now, but Contact, again, spoilers for those of you who haven't watched a film that's 23 years old from 1997, but a great film 
Contact, so please press pause or skip ahead one minute if you haven't seen Contact with Jodie Foster, uh, directed by Robert Zemeckis. But in Contact, we discover that aliens elsewhere basically are more intelligent species than us, uh, looking to try and save some of us and repopulate us elsewhere. This is pretty similar in that sense, right? Like these characters want to take people like Caleb and Abby and I'm not sure how many kids are being saved from around the world, but we only see two, Caleb and Abby. And to me, it basically has totally Adam and Eve vibes where, or the Blue Lagoon, where you basically take opposite genders, drop them on some uh, metaphorical island, and they will eventually copulate and keep the species alive. Yeah, yeah, except this new species will be the most inbred bunch of fucking... <laughs> um, it, like, don't, don't you feel you needed to see maybe a couple more uh, people at the end there? Yeah, but your complaint about inbreeding is basically the entire fundamental issue with the Old Testament as well. So I guess it's a case of is it metaphorical? Are there other kids around? At the very end of the film, I don't think we see any other people, do we? No. Or am I wrong in remembering? No, I think it's just them and they're holding rabbits. So So the rabbits are very metaphorical, yes, right? Yes. Like the idea of fertility and breeding and so on. These children will fuck like rabbits? Ugh. I guess so. I guess so. That's- What's also unclear to me is that the idea is, is that only people who can hear the angels or aliens have been chosen to be transplanted to this other world, another version of Earth, which at the end looks very CG. There's like wheat that's flowing in the wind that resembles sea anemones. Like it looks like a cross between what James Cameron would imagine for Avatar with, say, Terence Malick. It's this world in which it's Terence Malick-ish and it's very um, vibrant and uh, alien-esque. And I guess the idea is that you've got to hear the aliens' voices to know you've been chosen. But what's confusing about the film is that Caleb wears a hearing aid and his dad says explicitly it's because he's not deaf but he needs to quieten the voices or have clarity, something like that. Yeah, that was never that was never that was never clear to me, the whole hearing aid thing. Also though, Ben the, the, the aliens slash angels, they're all white and they transport these two kids to this sort of Elysium field. It's all a little bit eugenical. Yeah, totally. I felt the same way. I felt, mm, I did, I felt a little bit uncomfortable about it. I mean, if we look at 2012, for example, we see scenes of elephants and giraffes being transported to these arcs. They're actually referred to as arcs in the film. And at least the idea is there they're trying to breed many species going forward, and there are so many people on those boats that to me there's very much a sense that there'll be genetic diversity <laughs> in terms of like colour, gender, appearance, intelligence, etc. In this particular world of knowing, it does feel like it's pretty much just the Old Testament come to life, which I have concerns about. <laughs> uh, although, although in fairness, at least it doesn't lay on the religious side of it too thickly. I mean, there's the sort of half-baked subplot with Nick Cage and his dad, um, but, you know, at least it doesn't uh, sort of, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't feel like a Christian film, for instance. It doesn't feel like Left Behind or something really sort of tacky in that 
vein. Yeah, actually, that's a great segue to discuss the Christian blockbusters. There must be a, a name for this particular genre, but for the listeners who haven't actually seen these films, they are quite amazing. Usually they're led by Kirk Cameron, he of Growing Pains, an 80s TV sitcom, and they're in the spirit of something like Knowing, but the theology is laid like thick peanut butter all over it. They're very didactic. There's no subtext. There's no subtlety. And they usually have a budget of about one fiftieth of knowing. But they also do very well at the cinema. And there's a very substantive um, proportion of the population, mainly in middle America, that really consume those films because it validates and gives value to their belief, which is fine, which is fine. But they don't tend to be great films when looked through the lens of being um, just a quality production in terms of story or characterization. They're not like at the pinnacle of storytelling. Fair to say? Are you, are you saying God's Not Dead 2 is not the pinnacle of storytelling? No, that's right. Okay. All right. You heard it here first, guys. But I'm, I must say, let's look at the positives of knowing. I actually really enjoy this film. This film actually got four stars out of four, would you believe, from Roger Ebert. Really? Yeah. One of the best films of the year, he said, uh, where others criticised the plot for being too fantastical, um, illogical. He actually appreciated the plot and the slow reveal. And I've got to say, this film to me, hear it now, hear it first, is a guilty pleasure. In fact, I'm not going to even say guilty because I don't feel guilty about watching it. I actually think it's a pretty good film. I think it's a great example of a high concept executed on a reasonable budget. This film was made for around $50 million, which is a quarter of the cost of 2012, wow. which cost $200 million. And what it does really well, I think, is it just chooses a few great scenes to throw a lot of money at. And then it's driven a lot by, uh, I guess it's a bit like a, a detective film in some way, isn't it? Like the character of John, played by Nick Cage, is slowly investigating various threads to try to work out what is the origin of these numbers before he realises that the numbers are actually dates and it's a prophecy as to destructive events that are going to occur in the short-term future. And so I really enjoy that um, that whodunit or who-will-do-it aspect to it. And when they do cut to, say, a great money scene, um, it's pulled off really well. Like this is a great scene where a plane crashes, like a 747, which is fulfilling one of the prophecies. And he's – John Nick Cage is actually in his car – um, in a basically huge traffic jam on a highway, and this plane turns side on, falls from the sky and slices through some of the cars in the traffic jam and then collapses. And essentially it's about, I think it's about two to five minutes as one shot or one moment where you follow him from his car to the plane crash about 200 metres away as he's trying to sort of save people and he's in shock, making sense of what's going on as the plane is catching on fire and there are fragments sort of everywhere and parts are sort of exploding or a propeller is still dangerously spinning. 
I think it's really well done. Yeah, it's a fantastic sequence. I, I'd say it's probably the the highlight of the the film, and it totally totally holds up. Eleven years later, there's some really great um, sort of combination between um, CGI and stunt work. Um, you know, you got all these like uh, flammable like uh, stunties on fire running around. It's really really cool, really well executed sequence. And you're totally right. This film really picks a couple of moments to 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 do these set pieces and then the rest yeah plays like a really sort of interesting detective film um i think you're you're right on the money with that analysis i think what's really impressive is that the cg of that plane stands up pretty well but then when the plane crashes everything is practical and so it does feel very evocative doesn't it like as you say the stuntmen are on fire and so on and it it feels very naturalistic like he's trying to save a few even though he can't and he just feels helpless. Like you really empathise with his situation and it makes you wonder what you would do in that situation where you're in shock, so you're already somewhat dislocated emotionally from what's going on. And then with the sound design working so well to immerse you in that terrifying experience, like I think we saw, saw something similar in Lost, the pilot to Lost in 2004, where the plane crashed and the engine keeps going, that's really cool. Like, is that fear that if you run past an engine, you could be sucked in huh. or it could explode and spit someone out. Oh, awesome. That, that is just terrifying. It's particularly being spat out by an engine. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Well, I guess if you're the other side of it, right? <laughs> sure, sure. No, but it is a great sequence, isn't it? And I guess the the, the final sequence of the world being destroyed, I, I quite like that as well. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I like that they stick with their guns. He can't save the day. He can only work out what's going to happen. I love the idea that we see the world destroyed and, you know, it's a bit pat, but it's okay where he basically reconciles with his father and essentially he, his dad, sister and mum all perish together. And the way it's depicted in which essentially the solar flares cause Earth to burn and sweep like a carpet across the landscape, it's quite well done. Like you criticise, you know, various elements from a computer-generated effects point of view if you wanted to because the film is 11 years old, but it does stand up and it's taken from that, you know, 10,000-foot view where you don't see people actually incinerated. You just see large cities overcome, a bit like in the style of Roland Emmerich, but it works. And I actually found the part where he has to essentially decide whether to keep his son on earth to die with him or let his son go to be quite moving. And, you know, it makes you think, what would I do in that situation? Like, what is better? Do I let my son and now he's responsible for the girl, Abby, because Rose Byrne surprisingly died a few scenes earlier? And, again, I was surprised that they did something as courageous as that by killing off the love interest s character, he then has to decide to let them both go. And, you know, like, who knows? Are these people aliens? I guess they are. They kind of get sucked up into a spaceship. But who's to say that those aliens won't do horrific things to those children, right? Yeah, totally. Harvest their limbs or something. <laughs> exactly. So all those fears we have of stranger danger is, like, amplified massively and he's basically just betting the farm that at least these ostensible aliens will, you know, keep his kids alive in some 
capacity, which would be good for them, which have, which is a huge risk. So I really like that ending with with him, that choice, and I like the fact that the world is destroyed. And to me, I think it's actually a very rewatchable film and you can pick up different details on a second viewing. Uh, any final thoughts, Gabe, on knowing before we move to 2012? Uh, just one. I agree with you. There is no such thing as a guilty pleasure. Just own enjoying it, man. Just It's cool, man. You liked it. You love it. That's fine. You don't have to make excuses for it. <laughs> um, cool. Um, oh, by the way, just one last comment. The girl, Abby, who plays the daughter of Rose Byrne, is a dead ringer, excuse the pun, for Rose Byrne, which I thought was really well done in terms of casting. And also, as a general comment, time capsules are cool. Like, I feel you could write... A thousand great movies about time capsules, be the you know, prophecy or a catalyst for some sort of disturbance later on. There's just something mythical about time capsules. And I'm not sure if kids bury time capsules anymore at school, but they are awesome. What do you think? No, they suck, Ben. Um, it's so stupid. Like, if we want to go in this movie, right, in 1959 or whatever it is, the kids all bury time capsules. These kids spend a whole bunch of time drawing these little pictures or whatever. Then 50 years later, they unearth them and then just hand them out to kids. Those kids are just going to scrunch them up and throw them away. I felt this was really weird in this movie. It, didn't you think that was weird? They're just handing out these 50-year-old drawings to these random children. Here you go. Hey, have one. Have one. Have one. What the fuck? It was weird. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was weird to hand out the drawings of the kids. That makes no sense at all. Like, to me, there's no connection between the kids in the present and the kids uh, in the past. That was odd. But I guess they somehow had to try and have one of the kids corrupted by the numbers. But, yeah, I agree. That was a, a loose thread definitely. All right, let's jump to 2012. So, Gabe. What worked for you about that film and what didn't float your boat? Wow, okay. Um, well, I guess like you mentioned, we'll talk about it more. I do quite like the third act of this movie. I think it's the only time this movie becomes, I guess, dare I say, interesting. Um, but before we get to that, I don't know, there's a few quite nice CGI sequences and some awful, awful CGI. But there's, you know, when the plane takes off and... What is it? California crumbles. That's nice. Uh, John Cusack doesn't wear a hat. I, I guess that's something. Uh, Chiwetel Ejiofor is in it, and he's committed. Uh, I don't know. It is a bit of a tough sit, isn't it? <laughs> I just found this film to be agonising, and it wasn't a tough sit. And I was open to it. Okay, I thought, all right, let's hand ourselves over to this and indulge in these crazy visuals because this film was made 16 years after Independence Day. So, you know, the quality of special effects and visual effects has changed. So there's a greater likelihood we're going to see better images of water. And I must say, when I did see the poster for the film and the trailer, where we saw a Tibetan monk standing on a hill somewhere near, you know, in the Himalayas, and we saw this huge just tidal wave of water rushing towards him. I thought, you know what, that's pretty cool. That's a really simple, evocative way to express the scale of this disaster, more so than the day after tomorrow and more so than Independence Day because in those films we saw 
iconic locations like the White House, like the Statue of Liberty being destroyed. But there was something more powerful with the water rising so high and the Earth's crust making the surface of the Earth dip and raise in different ways around the world. I thought, that's pretty cool. But the film itself, I mean, I don't know, the first hour, it I just thought they 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 leant into the destruction too soon, in which case there wasn't a way to calibrate it so that when you had destruction after destruction after destruction, you kind of felt exhausted within a very short time. And the film goes for about two and a half hours. That's a lot of destruction. Yeah, you're right. I mean, John Cusack's always there when meteorites fall on Yellowstone or uh, California sinks into the tectonic plates. And and I guess there's only so many close shaves before you just don't really give a shit. Like, they only have so many characters that they can kill off as well. I don't know. I I agree. It just... It just sort of seems interminable um, until they get to the third act. Actually, the one bright spot, and you might totally disagree, is that Woody Harrelson is doing some bizarre, bizarre acting in this, uh, playing this sort of cartoon character as if he's some sort of conspiracy nut with a head injury. You know, there's this moment where he shows John Cusack his... Um, his video, I guess, about having predicted the end of the world and he jokes he made all the animations himself and it's like a six-year-old did it. It's really weird. Yeah, that is, is odd. Like he is just acting way over the top and I don't feel he's in the same movie. Now, I know he's meant to be playing an eccentric character but even the set, the comedy is not particularly on brand with the rest of the film. It's bizarre. It's bizarre. And also, too, I don't think his character serves any function at all. Like, the character appears for a very short time, and I think the character is meant to be the type of character in films who's the boy that cried wolf, the mad person who has said something terrible is going to happen, but no one believes that person because they are very odd they dress strangely, so it undermines their credibility. I think he's meant to be that type of character, but he actually doesn't actually forecast, predict anything, does he? No. He's more reactive. He's more giving a amateur radio show commentary on what's happening, but he's not actually making observations that other characters aren't already making. No, it sort of makes no... You're right. You're right. He's in a completely different movie. No one else in this film pitches their performance at his level. And although I liked it because, hell, you look for bright spots in this movie, it does totally undermine other parts of the film where they really try and go for some sort of pathos. But you could have removed him entirely. In fact, there's a whole bunch of characters you probably could have removed entirely and... It would have been fine. You know, you could have cut the George Siegel and his jazz playing partner, Chewy Tell Elijah's dad, out of the movie. Sure, Chewy Tell gets a nice scene where he calls his dad, but who cares? You know, who cares? This is the danger with those types of multi layered narratives. We talked about it in Contagion, right? And how well Steven Sodenberg did that. In fact, to our podcast listeners, we've already referenced White House Down, which we did twin movies on with Olympus Has Fallen. We've mentioned Dark City vs. The Matrix, and this is the third one we've mentioned in the same podcast, and that's the most recent episode, Contagion versus 
perfect sense. And we talked about how Contagion did such a great job of making each character feel like a fully realized three-dimensional character despite being on screen for such a short period of time. And they try and do the same thing here in having different people of different cultural backgrounds, geographies, ages, genders, experiencing this one tragedy simultaneously. But it doesn't work as well. Like the scenes on a cruise ship, and so funny now in this era of COVID-19, you see a cruise ship and you think to yourself, you know what, I'm more concerned of being on the cruise ship than I am about the apocalypse outside. But we see these two guys you mentioned who, what, appear to have trouble with their family and they try and reconcile it with their family members before they die. That's meant to be sort of like the emotional connection that the main characters have to family sort of on the outer. Is that the agenda? Yeah, I guess so. And, like, particularly weird is, like, George Siegel's character. Is that his name? I think it's him, yeah. Yeah, yeah, who tries to call his family moments before something happens and we've never seen them before and they get killed and then he gets killed and it's like, who gave a shit, you know? Like, I don't know, you wanted to plug George Siegel into your movie, you know? Hilariously, like, there's this terrible subplot with Tom McCarthy, director of Spotlight, playing the sort of new father figure to John Cusack's kids who sort of gets this, who's this sort of like wet twat who gets this sort of minor redemptive arc where it turns out, you know, uh, John Cusack and him kind of eventually bond over, you know, the kids actually like you. And then the movie just crushes him in some machinery. (laughs) And it's like, what? (laughs) Like, you, you tried so hard to give this guy you know, uh, a sort of arc, uh, a little a little emotional journey to go on, and then you just throw him into a giant cog. That <laughs> is absolutely ruthless. I agree. Like, there's a scene when they're being picked up by these uh, Chinese farmers, I think, and they're being driven in the back of a van or the back of a pickup truck, a ute, to the arcs, and the son is sleeping on Tom McCarthy's sort of stomach, and Tom McCarthy's sort of holding him in a very paternal you know, position. Firstly, they're driving in what appears to be somewhere which is like minus 10 degrees Celsius. It's freezing. And they're wearing, he's about like wearing like a light cotton knit and there's barely any wind. <laughs> really bad effects. Like there's no sense of their hair moving at all. Um, there's no frostbite happening. So that looks just really fake as it is. They've thrown all their money at the destruction of, you know, the Himalayas, but they haven't quite got right the fact that these characters would be really cold when they've landed their plane in somewhere which resembles the Arctic or Antarctic. So, okay, getting past that, John Cusack looks at Tom McCarthy and sort of says, oh, look, he really likes you. And that's, you're right. There's a moment here where Tom McCarthy's character is like, oh, that's nice, you know, I feel more welcomed. But the ending, the way they kill him off is brutal. But what's even more brutal than killing off Tom McCarthy's character by being sort of mashed in cogs, which is a very kind of exploitation film way of dying is that it appears within like minutes or hours John Cusack and Amanda Peet exes are back on oh totally and And at the end of the film it cuts to like 27 days later and they're basically a happy family they're hugging Um, she makes this comment where he asks how do you feel about Tom McCarthy when he's alive and she makes a comment like 
he's good enough, (laughs) which I think is meant to make the comment that essentially John Cusack is so bad that a good enough guy is better than John Cusack, which is meant to, I guess, say that Tom McCarthy's a better man than John Cusack, a better husband, but it's really a backhanded compliment. Oh, it's terrible. Like what's, you know, you've got an alpha male and then there's a beta male. Tom McCarthy's whatever's below that. He's, it's just uh, it's just terrible. I mean, just ridiculous. And it doesn't even feel like the movie is killing him off in a way to sort of undercut your expectations in an interesting way. Say, for instance, like Kate Winslet is killed in Contagion. It just, it just feels just like they fucked up the tone. You know what I mean? Like it just, it doesn't, it doesn't feel like it's done with any thought beyond, hey, wouldn't it be cool if Tom McCarthy was just mulched in a grinder? You know, I can't remember if the kids are there to see it, but they never even ask about what happened to him. Uh, oh, when's Gordon, when's Gordon coming back? I oh, know he's dead, son. Your mum and I are fucking again. <laughs> well, speaking of tone, there's another weird part where we see a scene at the start of the film where somehow the whole family, including Tom McCarthy's character, are all in the back of John Cusack's limousine because it's revealed that he's a science fiction writer, a not particularly successful one, and he drives a limousine as a day job for this Russian oligarch. So he's driving along. The entire landscape is exploding around him, and it's this thing that you've seen in every Roland Emmerich film where someone is running or driving and the world is collapsing at the heels of their feet, literally and figuratively. And so they're driving along and they get caught behind these old ladies in a car who have the thick Coke bottle glasses like they're straight out of the set of Golden Girls and they're driving slowly and he's beeping his horn to overtake them and then decides to kind of detour through nearby gardens to get around them. And then you see them being destroyed when essentially this huge falling piece of soil or a building just crashes into the car and just annihilates these two old people who I think you're not really meant to care for because they were annoying and that they were slowing down the escape of our heroes. But it just seems a little bit harsh. (laughs) Oh, yeah. It's like uh, Roland Emmerich makes Michael Bay's sense of humour look incredibly sophisticated. Like, like they both have that same sort of thing, like, ha-ha, let's just kill off these people. Oh, God, it's just... It's just terrible. I should say, though, that the uh, the guy that John Cusack drives for, the Russian guy, I did like him. Uh, Zlatko Burek from uh, the Pusher movies. I did appreciate him being on screen. I mean, he's, he's hammy and, and there's the sequence where he sort of saves his son is incredibly terrible when he sacrifices himself to save one of his two identical kids. Like, you have two, bro. <laughs> but 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 I, I liked him turning up in the movie. But you know the subplot with his girlfriend and her having an affair with the Russian pilot. Just cut them all out. It's just who cares? Who cares? Actually, another person or thing to cut out is the freaking dog. I hate it when pets are always you know in jeopardy. Like for example, I love the film Enemy of the State by Tony Scott with. Gene Hackman and Will Smith. And there are about three mammals. There's Will Smith's dog. There's Gene Hackman's cat. I think there's a third dog that are always in jeopardy. And I just don't like pets in jeopardy. Not because I'm fearful of them being hurt. I just think it's such a cliche 
and a soft way for people to empathise. It's like, oh, you empathise with the old nanas who got crushed by that building or by various shots of people falling out of skyscrapers and falling to their death. But we're going to root for the little fluffy dog that his girlfriend slash prostitute <laughs> owns. And like, it's just silly. It, it To me, it just feels too contrived, too cliched. Like, you've got enough human characters in there. Can't we just try and juice them for empathy without bringing in the fluffy, annoying dog? Well, you never believe that they're actually going to... You don't believe that Roland Emmerich is going to squash the dog under a pillar because that would be too upsetting for people. You know, you can kill some old ladies or whatever, but, you know, the days of Artax being pulled into the mud in the never-ending story or whatever are, are kind of long gone. I mean, what was the last movie when they really killed an animal? I Am Legend with the dog dying in that. But, but never once do you believe that this little chihuahua, which is quite a cute little dog in this, will ever get wasted. No, exactly. No, it's all set up as to who will die from the very start. The only other surprising death, not surprising, but the moment when the pilot lands the plane and it's teetering on the edge and you think for a moment he's going to survive and then it falls down and crashes, I guess that's meant to, not that we had much sympathy for that guy beforehand, but that was one of the few times they killed any major character. And he wasn't a deserving guy uh, of dying, unlike the Russian guy who's portrayed as being pretty selfish and closer to a criminal than a business person. Any more nits or picks or things you liked? I mean, I did appreciate, I guess, um, Danny Glover's The President character getting getting killed by the USSS John F. Kennedy. I thought that was pretty funny, I suppose. You know, he's where is he's he, a giant a giant battleship washes in and just flattens everybody. I thought, ah, you know, that was, that's kind of nice, I guess. Yeah, I mean, they did definitely extended the deaths. The scene of Woody Harrelson dying, he seems to be dying or being ready to die for about 30 to 60 seconds longer than you'd expect. Like in most of the films, when a tidal wave or a fire like comes through, it's that moment where it comes through and there's that vacuum of sound. Yeah. And it cuts to black. But for some of these deaths, like that one of Danny Glover's president, it seems to be really drawn out. Like you see the wave towering over him for what seems like an eternity before this huge warship comes and lands on him. So, you know, you just feel that basically the director, Roland Emmerich, is taking every opportunity to really milk every possible visual for the destruction and affecting every single character. Um, Actually, it just occurred to me, Roland Emmerich also had the dog feature in that tunnel sequence where he's almost killed uh, in Independence Day. Oh, and he heroically leaps through the fire. Great, great moment, great moment in cinema. In slow motion. Great moment. (laughs) So should we talk about what we did like in this movie, I guess? Yeah, you go first. Um, Okay, well, I, I think the movie actually gets somewhat interesting and they sort of squander it when they arrive at the Ark and uh, the ostensible villain of this, Oliver Platt, is, you know, um, I guess, uh, what would you say? He's, he's, he's not allowing people to come on board because he has to make the sort of tough decisions about uh, how many people will be allowed on the ships based on the amount of sort of provisions they have and so on. And to me, this is the bit where the film kind of actually gets interesting. It's like, oh, there is a real actual moral kind of conundrum there. Like, 
if you had these, what are like three or four big ships, but you have sort of three, what, what's the population of Earth? Three billion, seven billion, a hundred billion? Something like that. There's just a lot of fucking people, but not enough space. How would you make those decisions about who should be allowed on board? And weirdly, they sort of make Oliver Platt's character kind of cartoony in his sort of villainy. And it feels like a real mistrick to me because actually a lot of the things he's saying are callous but make sense or are the kind of sort of tough decisions that would need to be made. And I kind of wish they'd spent more time on that and I kind of wish they'd made Chewie Tail Alicia Ford's character a bit more engaged in that instead of just pointing at sort of a couple of rich Saudi guys and being like, oh, they must have bought their way in. <laughs> you know, and, we, you know, Oliver Platt comes back with, well, if you're so noble, why don't you give your ticket away to one of the Chinese workers? And Chewy Television 4 just kind of shrugs and walks off. And it's like, there was actually an opportunity there for something interesting and they kind of squandered it. Is that what you liked about the third act? Yeah, I agree. I think it, the questions asked are interesting and they do say that the best villains in a film are the ones where you can partially identify with their perspective. And this is why people, rightly or wrongly, I would say rightly, enjoy the characterization of the villain Thanos in the last two Avengers films, Avengers Infinity War and Endgame, because you can look at the villain's perspective and go, look, you know what? They've taken it too far, but some of the reasoning behind their ideology is actually quite reasonable. Totally. And I would say the same thing with Oliver Platt. Like, he plays the line to other characters who can test his decision by saying to them, look, you're idealistic, but effectively your idealism is naive. Like, this is the real world. Like, to govern and lead, you have to make tough choices. And I wonder what would have happened if you'd left Danny Glover in the position of president to have to make the same decisions because, as it is, he's basically emasculated under the guise that he's being heroic. So he essentially is going down with the ship by remaining in Washington, and so does the Italian prime minister, with the idea being that he will lead his people on the ground and be with them until the last part, last solar flare destroys Washington, which is a nice sentiment, but isn't the tougher decision leading an entire world after this? Like, that's the harder thing to do because Danny Glover's president can't do anything. So to me, there aren't any heroics in just being the last man, the, you know, the captain metaphorically going down with the ship. To me, the more courageous thing to do is to actually be the person who's led the country up until now and then has to make the choices as to who lives and dies going forward rather than actually giving that responsibility to someone who wasn't democratically voted into that position of power in the first place. And I, I wonder if they did that to try and essentially lead those hard decisions to a more classical villain and in this case, played by Oliver Platt, because it's more palatable to the audience. If Oliver Platt's going, you're so naive, we've got to break a few eggs to make an omelette. Of course, some people have to die. That's the way it is. Yeah, that's right. You know, there's the scene where um, uh, Chiwetel Ejiofor's character turns up and goes to his, um, what do you call it, his, like, his, his bunk room, his lodgings, his cabin. It's a cabin. And he goes to his cabin and he's like, oh, you can fit 10 people in here. 
And I guess they're trying to play it like the scene, you know, in Titanic when they're they're getting the lifeboats. You know, there's that snooty old um, bitch who's like, "I hope the lifeboats aren't too full." And uh, 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 what's her name? Misery's character is like, "People are going to die," you know. And in that in that context, it totally makes sense. But here, I guess, you know, it would be interesting to see some sort of like repercussion to the idea that, you know, at the end they let all of these people on, which is a noble thing to do. But I presume they only have enough food for much less of those people. So I'd like to have sort of seen, you know, is there a cost to that nobility? Would they have been better off making those hard choices? Are they just going to all start eating each other as they float around for, you know, the next however long? And I don't know, it just... It just feels like a, a missed opportunity, you know. And and you're totally right. What if it was Danny Glover who had to make those those tough decisions, and you had a much more sort of interestingly nuanced character instead of a kind of yeah stock stock villain? And I thought Oliver Platt did as good as he could with what he had. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It just it just sort of felt like a shame. In fact, I would have liked to have just seen if the whole movie was just the last third. Do you know what I mean? You, you could have done the whole movie as the last third without all of the destruction and that would have been much more interesting to me. Yeah, I agree. I felt the same way after I saw Deep Impact and Armageddon. Oh, again, by the way, fourth reference. This was, in fact, our first episode of the Twin Movies podcast, Armageddon versus Deep Impact. But I think it was Deep Impact, wasn't it, where Morgan Freeman's the president and that film they created arcs as well. But like this film the arcs become uh, relevant towards the last third of the story and there isn't really a moral conundrum involving who's on and off beside one or two yelly moments. Is my memory serving me right? Yeah, they have some sort of lottery system that allows people into those. I think the caves or something in that. I can't quite remember. You know, um, and I suppose in this, you know, Oliver Platt rightly points out that it would cost trillions of dollars to build these things and it's sort of naive to think that as if they wouldn't have allowed people to buy their way onto them look i don't have enough money i'm just gonna get swept away with everybody else like fuck it whatever i'll just die on the beach like tay leone in deep impact but but i guess at least there's a practicality to what oliver platt is saying as opposed to the sort of pious bullshit that chiwetel elijah character has to do you know what you could have actually had Exactly the same lines coming out of Oliver Platt's mouth, but delivered with more of a sense of being apologetic. Totally, totally. Essentially saying, look, what you're saying is right, but we don't live in a world of black and white. We live in a world of grey. And I hear what you're saying. It doesn't know you're right. It's not fair in that we can't take everyone and we can't take a diversity of people, whatever no matter how little money or how much money they have. But this is where we're at. This is the real world. And ultimately, we need some of us to survive rather than all of us democratically dying together. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Before we uh, move on, I'll leave you with this. This pretty much sums up the way I feel about 2012. Okay. In terms of my view, the last lines of this film this is their way to end their disaster movie, is the daughter whispering to her dad, John Cusack, no more pull-ups. 
in reference to her not feeling scared enough to have to wear nappies. And he responds, nice. (laughs) Terrible. And that is the end of the film, which pretty much to me sums it up. Can you imagine reading that last page as the screenwriter, producer, director, or the studio executives and going, ah, job done. Like, really? Like, it's meant to kind of like ground the film in having, I guess, closure and the idea that these characters will no longer feel anxiety and there's a new journey ahead to a new home. And some of the biggest and most dramatic difficulties have been overcome, but also some of the smallest challenges have been overcome, such as bedwetting. Yeah, that's right. And that's how we end. It's like disappointing. 7.591 billion people have just died, but she ain't pissing her pants no more. (laughs) Okay, let's look at the behind the scenes making of trivia for both these movies. So did you know, Gabe, that the main character, played by John Cusack, whose name is Jackson Curtis, is actually named after 50 Cent, ah, the rapper, 50. whose name is Curtis Jackson. Yeah, right. And the director was just a big fan. Wow. I guess that explains why John Cusack's character gets shot 14 times as well. That's right. <laughs> All right, jumping over to Knowing, for audience listeners who didn't know this, the film was actually shot in Victoria, a state in Australia, specifically in Melbourne. And I've got to say, it looks really good. I was looking out to see where there were seams and where I could spot how they'd repurposed locations. And I've got to say, everything from the trees to the cars and which side of the road they drive on and so on, and the architecture, to me it looks very much like America where the film is set. Yeah, right. I'll tell you a great piece of trivia from knowing. Uh, Actually, it's not really a piece of trivia, but something I really love. While I was watching it, you know how they reuse that piece of classical music throughout and they do it really well? That's... uh, the Seventh Symphony Major Second Movement, Allegretto in A Minor by Beethoven. Beethoven. That guy's been doing some great work recently. I know. Like he's a really up-and-coming emerging composer, and I feel, I, I could be wrong, but I've got a feeling that there'll be good things coming his way in the future if he keeps this up. Yeah, I'm looking at his IMDb. He's got a lot of credits, so, you know, great, great things, great things. Um, another little bit of trivia, I suppose, for knowing is that it's actually the second film featuring Rose Byrne to revolve around the possible end of the world, as, of course, she was in a film in which a solar event was going to cause the destruction of Earth in one of our favourite directors, Danny Boyle's Sunshine from 2007. Great movie. And jumping over to 2012, another bit of piece of trivia for you. The music in the teaser trailer for Knowing was actually the same music used for the trailer of The Shining, the 1980 film by... By Stanley Kubrick. <laughs> yeah, yes. Oh, yeah. That's the guy. That's the guy. Little known auteur Stanley Kubrick. <laughs> All right. How about casting woulda, shoulda, couldas? Okay. Uh, do you know of any of the background, any of the cast here? Uh, no, no. Who, who, who almost landed in this? Apparently Gerard Butler was first considered for the role of Jackson Curtis and he turned it down because of scheduling conflicts. Really? In 2009? Yeah. What was what was Jerry doing in 2009? <laughs> Probably. Wasn't he doing that film Gamer where he played like a real-life avatar for a computer game? I mean, I guess he was still pretty hot back then. After having done 300 a few years ago. Yeah, yeah, he turned it down for Gamer or The Ugly Truth 
or law-abiding citizen, many of his 2009 hits. <laughs> the other casting order shoulda, coulda is Seth Rogen turned down the role of Adrian Hemsley, played by one of our favourite actors, Chiwetel. What? Who? Yeah, exactly. No, that's so weird. Like, would this have been Seth Rogen trying to do serious roles? It's like that brief period when Vince Vaughn was like a, a serious actor at the start of his career. Was Seth thinking, oh, maybe maybe here's my shot? I guess it was his Jonah Hill moment. <laughs> yeah, I guess. Yeah. I can't imagine him in this in this movie or in that role. No, not at all. I don't think it would have worked as well. It would have been a goofy film. Even if he was doing a serious character, it just wouldn't have worked. Totally. All right, let's play Spot the Aussie. So, with knowing it's pretty easy because the film was set in Australia, it's almost like Spot the American, Nick Cage. Um, so, look, it's really take your pick. It's basically everyone but Nicolas Cage is Australian. Fair to say? Yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean, don't you love a, a Mendo sighting? Oh, we'll get to him. Let's go to 2012. Were there any Aussies that appeared in that? I, I don't think so. Yeah, I didn't think I spotted any unless unless someone turns up in a very small role um, but no no one no one stood out to me okay I mean Dean Semler oh the DOP yeah cinematographer I mean yeah okay Beh- behind the scenes does that count yep okay he of Mad Max 2 I think yeah uh, Oscar winner for Dances with Wolves yeah well I've got to say the cinematography of 2012 I didn't like, but to be fair, I think the film was shot on green screen a lot and it had very low contrast computer generated effects. So to me, it just felt a bit bland and washed out like Marvel movies. But I guess that's something outside Dean's control. Hey, he got paid. Good for Dean. Dean got a paycheck. Okay, let's uh, jump to the box office. I think we can anticipate the answer here. Which movie, Gabe, do you think was the box office champ? Well, I guess I'm going to say 2012 did more money, but I would hope knowing made more in uh, in relation to its budget. So knowing had a budget of 50 million US dollars. It made 80 million domestically in the US, plus 104 million internationally for a grand total of 183 and a half million dollars. So it was profitable. If you apply the rule of threes. The film has to make three times its budget to be profitable. This film had a base of 50 and made 183.5. So it did pretty well. In contrast, 2012, it had a huge budget, and that makes sense given the talent behind it. And I can imagine the argument being look, we need to spend a lot of money on computer effects and a large cast at times. It had a budget of $200 million. And this is in an era kind of before a lot of those Marvel movies really push those budgets right up. And the cast aren't particularly expensive on paper. So that's really a production budget of $200 million. It only did $166 million in the US, but it had another $625 million internationally for a grand total of $791 million. Wow. So basically, the rule of thumb here is if you show – Every country in the world being destroyed. Perhaps you get like an audience member from every country in the world who wants to see the Eiffel Tower, the Vatican, and insert your country of choice. Wow, that's crazy. It made only just slightly less than Independence Day. Yeah. Huh. Incredible. Yeah. And this was meant to be the 
destruction movie of all destruction movies. So that's interesting. Okay, let's jump to Rotten Tomatoes. So knowing scored 33% on the tomato meter with critics versus 2012, which scored 39%. What? Yeah, so 2012 actually did better with the critics than Knowing, which really, really surprises me. Yeah, that's that's quite surprising. I would have thought Knowing would have had a much higher RT score. I mean, you know, what do you need to get fresh on Rotten Tomatoes? Uh, the equivalent of a 6 out of 10? Yeah, something like that. This is a solid 6 out of 10 movie. This sh- I'm not saying it should have 100, you know, but... I, I agree, I agree. That to me is a tragedy that Knowing only has 33% with critics. So have a guess how audiences rated Knowing versus 2012. I feel I feel Knowing would have had a, a has a reasonable audience score. So Knowing scored 42% with the folks in the seats versus only 47% for 2012. Wow. That's a bad score for a film that went on to make almost 800 million internationally. Um, and I wonder if essentially they say that a lot of these films these days are made as, you know, popcorn roller coaster movies where the dialogue isn't as important because international audiences don't want to read subtitles and they just want to focus on the sizzle, the spectacular visual image. I wonder if it's just a case that people just sort of like got off on the the destruction on screen, but when asked at the door, what do they think? They went, Yeah, nah. Yeah, what a shame. All right. <laughs> Let's jump to the awards. Okay. Okay. So here we go. Are you ready, Gabe? Are you poised? Yes. All right. We need some sort of theme music, I think, for our awards going forward. Some sort of like. Yeah, something that resembles like the Oscars, you know. A fanfare. Uh, yeah, a bit of fanfare. Okay. We need some sort of tune. Okay, I've right. got it. How about this? That's where Sam will put something in. <laughs> Excellent. Okay. Um, all right. Let's just consider that game for the future. Okay. Fair, fair. <laughs> Take it on notice. All right. Let's start with the first award, which is best title, Knowing versus 2012. Gabe, which one takes home the big gold medal for twin movies? I feel like 2012 relies on you needing to know about some sort of Mayan calendar thing. So I don't really think that's a particularly evocative title. Plus, now that we're in 2020, why the why <laughs> this sort of dates it? And so I'm going to go with knowing. Yep, I agree for precisely those two reasons. Knowing definitely gets it. It's more evocative. It's more interesting, and doesn't date it. Done. Knowing takes it. Alex Proyas, you can contact us at our website, and your award is waiting. Jumping to best poster, Gabe. Um, well, what's the knowing poster? Is it the the globe being consumed with fire? Yeah, that's right. There's different versions of it. For the podcast listeners who can't see the posters right now, the knowing poster is basically a black poster with a image of the earth and essentially it's like it's on fire with the fire. Like a, imagine a globe on a hot plate of gas, you know, in the kitchen with the flames sp- coming up from the sides and, and underneath. And then some of the images also have Nicolas Cage's face because, of course, you need to have the floating head of the main actor to try and get audiences on board. Whereas the 2012 poster, uh, been a, there was a few of these posters and, interestingly enough, some of the theatrical posters are the worst. The teaser posters were better. The one teaser poster I like is actually an image of a monk 
shot from behind, watching this tidal wave wash into the Himalayas, ostensibly up to Mount Everest, to try and take it all out, which to me gives a greater sense of the scale of the apocalypse. The other ones are just basically images of the earth uh, with essentially cities falling off into the water. But, you know, it isn't very emotional or evocative beyond any other end-of-the-world movie. So for me, it's a case of the better of two evils. I'm going to go towards knowing. I'm going to vote for 2012. I like the monk in the Himalayas as the giant wall of water approaches. Okay, if we can choose the monk, which wasn't a ubiquitous poster, then I'll go for the monk. Okay. I've changed my mind. The monk wins. All right, 2012, monks have it. The Bill Fleck Big Break Award, named after American indie actors Billy Bob Thornton and Ben Affleck, who jumped from indie films into the Hollywood big time when they starred in the Michael Bay film Armageddon. So, Gabe, who got their big break in these twin movies? Do you think, where was Rose Byrne in 2009 when Knowing came out? Was she, was she already enjoying a, a, a prosperous Hollywood career? I mean, Bridesmaids hadn't come out yet, so it was pre that. Was this, was this a big break for Rose? No, I don't think so because she was playing the serious character. She was on that TV show Damages, I think, by this stage. She'd already starred in 2007 in the film we mentioned before, Sunshine. I think she'd already been in or around this time 28 days later. And this is before she got her got acknowledged for her acting or comedy chops, I should say. Wait, 28 weeks later. 28 weeks later. Sorry, sorry. The wrong the wrong 28. But either way, she was known as a serious actor. Like she played this fragile character in Damages. And it wasn't until Bridesmaids where Hollywood started seeing the comedic version of her. Okay. So I would say no, but look, I think the answer is right before you. It's Liam Hemsworth in the room in a classroom scene with one line playing a character known as Spencer, but he only has one line the entire film. And he went on after this to do the last song with Miley Cyrus. So this to me was his big break. It was his first American Hollywood film and he's had a pretty substantive career since then. Nothing like Chris Hemsworth, his brother, but he's made movies and got paid well for big movies. And he's now in a quibby TV series, that new app. So that's something, right? I don't know what Quibi is. Uh, this podcast brought to you by Quibi. <laughs> uh, I didn't I didn't spot Liam Hemsworth in the movie. If it's made in 2009. He would have been, what, like 18 or 20 or something? Isn't the classroom scenes with, like, kindergartners? No, there's another scene where Nick Cage, the character John, is lecturing to the class. Oh, he's at university. Yes. I see. That's right. I see. I did not spot him. All right. Okay, there you go. How about any contenders from 2012? Um, hmm. Well, Cusack was already established. Amanda Pete was already established. Was this, I mean, where was where was Chiwetel? He, was, he wasn't Oscar nominated yet. Yeah, he was pretty established as well. So was Oliver Platt. So was Thandie Newton. I mean, the kid Liam James, who played the character of Noah, he went on to have some other big, bigger movie roles like The Way Back, I think it was, uh, and stuff like that. But I guess maybe a stretch you might say this was Amanda Peet's biggest Hollywood role? No, you know what? I think I think Chiwetel Elysia for, to be honest, because pre-2009, you know, he'd had a small role in Inside Man. He had a small, he had a good role as the sort of villain in Children of Men. He'd been in Serenity quite memorably, but, you know, he hadn't he hadn't really, you know, 
burst through, um, you know, uh, 12 years a slave was still six years away. Um, and, you know, he had been in Dirty Pretty Things, which is a phenomenally good movie. Check out Dirty Pretty Things if you haven't seen it. But I think this was his first big, big, big movie. Excellent. Okay, good, good. Um, I think he gets it then, that case. And I hope I'm pronouncing his name right. Fuck. Yeah, I, I'm trusting you. <laughs> All right, the next award, the Before They Were Famous Award or the Blink and You'll Miss Them. Let's start with knowing. Well, I guess there's Liam Hemsworth, a contender again. I'm going to put down Ben Mendelsohn playing Phil and knowing. This was a, just before he starred in that role that got him the most attention was actually an Australian film, Animal Kingdom. And he was cast as like just the... The, the villain you just can't put your finger on in many films after that. Uh, how about you? Well, I think you can give it to Ben only if we're talking about for international audiences because Australians, Australians would have known him from for 20 years' worth of great work, you know, on TV and movies, Love My Way, Secret Life of Us, um, <laughs> sample people, uh, Classic, don't ever say that. Um, and the greatest Australian film of all time, 1996's Idiot Box. Yeah, totally. This was basically the start of his second half of his career. He had 20 years from a teenager right through until his uh, mid-30s. And then after this film, he does Animal Kingdom and then basically then enjoys this 10-year run being cast in everything uh, from indie films right through to Rogue One one of the Star Wars prequels. So, yeah, this for him, established actor, but his chance to kick on in America. And it's, and it's nice that he's not playing a villain in this because in almost every single American movie he's done since then, he's always, always the bad guy. You know, uh, in Star Wars he's the bad guy. In that Robin Hood movie he was the bad guy. He's just a bad guy. He's a bad guy in everything. He's a great bad guy. He's always a bad guy. Yeah. Now, 2012, I don't think there's anyone. So I'm about to prematurely say that Mendo gets it. What do you think? Give it to Mendo. All right, done. Mendo, your reward is waiting for you. All right, let's go to the Tommy Lee Jones Show Stiller Award, named after Tommy Lee Jones' performance in The Fugitive. So, Gabe, tell me, who stole the show despite being in a small or poorly written role, starting with knowing? Well, knowing... Knowing, I don't know, Nadia Townsend, the Australian actress playing Nick Cage's sister. Look, I don't know. I, I, my, the person I'm putting up for this award is in 2012. So you tell me, knowing, was anyone in Knowing doing it for you? I thought Nadia Townsend did a fantastic job, but I also really like that small performance by Danielle Carter playing the school teacher. I don't know, it was a tiny performance, and maybe because I recognise her as one of those who's that people that you just recognise from previous TV shows and films in Australia. But there was just something about her doing a captivating performance. But I guess overall, in terms of having to lift a relatively small character role to try and generate some empathy from the audience, it's probably Nadia Townsend. So who's your pick for 2012? Zlatko. Loves Latko. Oh, the Russian guy. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, th- I think I think he's Croatian. I think. I'm sorry if he's not. Um, but yeah, man, I love seeing him in a in a in a big, dumb Hollywood movie after having really enjoyed his uh, performances in the um, Pusher trilogy. All right, Latko, I agree. You get it. 
You can come pick your award up anytime you like, but he gets the Tommy Lee Jones Show Stiller Award. All right, jumping on to the Mickey Rourke Award. Newly named Gabe. <laughs> it was known as the Dustin Diamond Award, but after many episodes of Lobbying by Yourself, I have conceded and it's been renamed accordingly. Right. It's named in the honour of the actor who didn't quite make the most of his opportunities when given many opportunities to do so. So, who made the same mistake after appearing in these films, starting with Knowing? I guess we always kind of pick on child actors a little bit for this when there's kids in movies and then, you know, their careers don't blow up or whatever. And I guess it's often hard to tell if that's just because maybe they were in one movie and thought, no, fuck this. Um, But, I mean, I guess... The kid from Knowing? Yeah, I'd say so. Uh, Chandler Canterbury, who played Caleb, he didn't really kick on to do much after this film at all. He starred in a few vehicles, uh, mainly looks like a small Australian movies, and his last role was in 2014 in a film called Black Eyed Dog. So I would say he hasn't made the most of his opportunities, whereas the daughter, who I thought was really good, her name is Lara Robinson, playing Abby, and she's kicked on to do this great TV show called Upper Middle Bogan on ABC in Australia and several other pay TV shows too, like um, Cloud Street. And I think – so I think Caleb missed opportunity. Mm. Sorry, Caleb. Too bad, mate. The reluctant recipient of the Mickey Rourke Award. All right, jumping on to the Winner Winner Chicken Dinner Award. Who came out on top in each of these movies – either in front of the camera or behind, and was it their career high? Can I go first? You can. So for me, I think that Alex Proyas, the director and one of the writers in Knowing, came out on top for Knowing. I thought he did a great job by shooting a very slick-looking film with an engaged, engaging narrative that's a bit of a genre mesh between sci-fi and thriller slash horror maybe uh and that particular scene with the crash 747 plane i thought was really well done and has aged beautifully so i'm giving it to him how about you for knowing and then 2012 yeah i think i think that's fair to give it to alex price he was certainly able to perhaps leverage the success of this to make a much higher budgeted movie after this um gods of egypt which cost three times as much and lost the studio that made $90 million. Oh, ouch. Yes. Yeah, that's a story for another day. All right. How about 2012? Hmm. Did anyone? <laughs> like? I mean, I thought that Chiwetel did a great job in elevating the role and giving it a lot of humanity. Like, if you, you compare his performance to Oliver Platt, I thought Oliver Platt, who can be great in some films, is... Never a believable character. Whereas I always feel like Chiwetel what? makes you feel like it's a much more grounded, three-dimensional character. Take that back about Oliver Platt. Oliver Platt's a joy. Anytime he turns up in something, I point at the screen and say, there's Oliver Platt. <laughs> All right. Come on, man. By sounds of it, we're giving it to Alex Proyas. Okay, give it to Alex Proyas. But you you, you rescind your, your vicious Platt allegation. I reserve the right to maintain it. No way. Okay. The Best Dialogue Award. Now, these films aren't the most quotable films. I can't recall anything that jumps out. Did anything, you know, get stuck in your eardrums like an earworm? My ear holes. Your ear holes, exactly. Um, 2012, I mean, there's a lot of those kind of bullshit lines like, 
The moment we stop fighting for each other, that's the moment we lose our humanity. Yeah, the film appears to try and ape other films where the Prime Minister gives that great speech. Like, really, it's that speech by Bill Pullman in Independence Day. And it has the vibe where it tries to revisit those moments and never quite succeeds. So, look, I can't think of any memorable lines in either film. So from my point of view, I'm leaning towards a dead rubber with no winner. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting you say that because Danny Glover's president gives a speech in this and you'd be hard-pressed to remember a single line from it. Whereas, you know, like you say, Bill Pullman's Today We Celebrate at Independence Day, shit, man, fucking shivers down my spine. Yeah, I've got shivers down your spine as well. All right. So dead rubber, no winners there. Let's jump to the Nicolas Cage Chewing the Scenery Award, named after famous actor of prestige Hollywood films, blockbusters, and increasingly straight-to-video-on-demand films. Look, surely the winner of the Nicolas Cage Chewing the Scenery Award should go Nicolas Cage. Although no, I, no. I, you could actually argue that Woody Harrelson no way. possibly Nick- might actually steal his own award off him. Yeah, 100%. Nick Cage's performance in Knowing is actually fairly restrained, I think. Um, he's certainly not doing any of his huge, you know, cageisms or, you know, channeling some weird vaudeville uh, uh, idea or something. I think Nick Cage is reining it in, whereas, yeah, Woody Harrelson just feels like he was not directed and he just sort of did whatever he whatever he wanted and they just went, yeah, sweet, just, just go crazy, Woody. I liked it, you didn't, but it's clearly chewing the scenery. All right, so here we have it. Woody Harrelson has won the Nicolas Cage Chewing the Scenery Award. Unprecedented. And let's hope that Nicolas Cage can reclaim his uh, self-named award at some other stage. All right, let's jump to the Taking a Paycheck Award, which speaks for itself, starting with knowing. Who do you think was in it for the cashier? I don't know. Does it seem like anyone was just cashing a check? I mean, was this at the time when Nicolas Cage was still getting $20 million a movie? Probably not if the budget was only $50 million. See, I always interpret the Taking a Paycheck Award for when someone's starring in a really crappy role and it's clearly doing it just for the money because they're ordinarily... You know, an actor who would be more careful in their decisions. Totally, like Gary Oldman in most things. Gary Oldman, exactly. Or Robert De Niro starring in, you know, Rocky and Bullwinkle. Something like that. Yeah, yeah. In this case, the film was really good, unlike Rocky and Bullwinkle. And I feel like everyone was actually sincerely giving their best performance and no one was phoning it in. So I don't have any nominees for knowing. In terms of 2012, I probably would say Tom McCarthy playing the character of Gordon Silberman we've mentioned before. Tom McCarthy is known as a great director, great screenwriter, and occasionally acts as well. I think he originally is from an acting background. I'd say his character is the weakest in this film. So I'm thinking that Tom does this movie with the hope of getting money to make something like Spotlight down the track. What did he? What did he directed by this point? He directed the Station Agent already, right? Which is a good film. Yeah, I think he also done by this stage Win Win, or maybe that was later on. Uh, no, Win Win was later on. He maybe done. Had he done the Visitor? He done the Visitor, the Station Agent, and the Visitor. He done the Visitor, which was Oscar nominated. He done the Station Agent, I think Oscar nominated as well. Yeah, Win Win wasn't until 2011, and the infamous film The Cobbler with Adam Sandler in 2014, and Spotlight came in 2015. So 
He had the acting or the directing chops of The Visitor, but he was making small independent films compared to a bigger film like Spotlight down the track. Okay, well, give it to give it to Tom. All right, Tom takes home that award. All right, jumping to the Stephen Tobolowsky Award, a.k.a. Hey, It's That Guy, named after the iconic supporting actor who played Ned Ryson from Groundhog Day. So, Gabe, which actor triggered Hey, It's That Guy when he or she appeared on screen, starting with knowing? I mean, I suppose you got to give it to Mendo, right? Like yeah, I think I think I think Ben Mendelsohn's got to take that for knowing, surely. Yeah, yeah, and then for 2012, I mean, take your pick. There's a fair whack of them in this, isn't there? But for me, it's going to go to someone who I think may well have won this award before, and that is an actor name. Oh, we're gonna. Can we do it on one, two, three? Okay. All right. So on the count of three, let's both name who we think should win the Stephen Tobolowsky. Hey, it's that guy award. And I think we may be thinking of the same person. Although this film is punctuated with many performances by recognizable faces, okay. but not names. So you ready? Yeah, you, you can count us down. Okay. Three, two, one. Stephen McCaddy. Well, there you go. Hey. Yep. I love him. So for our podcast listeners, Stephen McCaddy plays Captain Michaels who's the captain on the arc with the main characters. And to me, he is your budget Lance Henriksen lookalike. He is a dead ringer but with darker and more hair than Lance Henriksen. And you might remember him appearing in the opening terrifying scene from the David Cronenberg film A History of Violence. Yeah, and if you haven't seen it, he's the lead in a movie called Pontypool, which is a really excellent version of a zombie movie, kind of unlike anything you've seen. Highly recommended. Highly. All right, it's unanimous then. Stephen McCaddy takes it for 2012 and Knowing Combined, winner of the Stephen Tobolowsky Award. Okay, jumping ahead to the Delroy Lindo Award for great actors who aren't cast often enough. Let's start with Knowing. Now, I had the actor I mentioned before, Daniel Carter, who played the school teacher, but on reconsideration, I'm going to put Nadia Townsend back in the mix what are your choices for knowing and 2012? Yeah, okay. I mean, give it to give it to Nadia for knowing. For 2012, I mean, I would say Zlatko Burek, but I went and had a look at his IMDb and he's actually working like gangbusters, just not in um, not in American movies. So take your pick, really. Yeah, I'm gonna say Stephen McCaddy. I think we need to see more of Stephen. I recognise him and I want more. And he was great in that lead role of Pontypool, which was a film from about 10 years ago that you put me onto. And it's a classic one-location, low-budget film, which is driven by a really engaging performance. And Stephen McCaddy has a captivating voice. He could easily be a radio announcer, a DJ, and that's the character he plays in Pontypool. But he also has a really interesting character face. He's not a classical leading man and that he's not like classically attractive, but he's very engaging. So I want to see, like Delroy Lindo, I want to see more of Mac Hattie. Fair, fair. Him and Jimmy Mystery. <laughs> All right, we're coming to the end of the awards. All right. The Memphis Reigns Award, inspired by the absurdly named character played by Nick Cage from Gone in 60 Seconds. Gabe, which character steals the cake for the most ludicrous name, starting with Knowing? Well, what are our character names in Knowing? John Costler? Caleb Costler? 
I mean, any any movie where a kid is called Caleb, I guess that's the thing. But you know, did any? I don't think there was any really crazy names in that. So maybe it's got to be something from 2012. Knowing that, surely it's got to be Jackson Curtis. <laughs> totally, totally. Knowing that, or weirdly as well. John Cusack is playing a character called Jackson Curtis. Curtis, 50 Cent Jackson, would later go on to produce a movie starring John Cusack and Nicolas Cage called The Frozen Ground. Oh, well, that, that's clearly a sign. What? Clearly John Cusack takes this home. There you go. In fact, I would hope that he would actually consider splitting the custody of this award, perhaps sort of like one week on, one week off, with 50 Cent. If, if 50 Cent's up for it, I think that's only fair. All right. The Memento Award, named for moments you completely forgot about until you rewatched these movies, starting with Knowing. I guess I forgot how goofy the angels were and that they just reminded me of the vampire Spike from Buffy, as we've discussed. I forgot about that. I forgot about the Beethoven sequence, which I thought was very nice. I forgot that Ben Mendelsohn was in the movie. Yeah, I agree with all of those. I forgot Mendo was in the film entirely, which is so funny because now that we've seen him for 10 years being pretty much fawned over by Hollywood. Um, it was just so funny to watch him here. And actually I had him as a nominee for Worst Acting or the Nicolas Cage Award from earlier because his American accent is terrible, <laughs> terrible. Like I think there's a reason why Mendo in recent films just plays an Australian because people like his performance and he's captivating on screen, he's mesmerising but his accents aren't great. And when we had him playing a green alien with a really Aussie accent in- What? What was that in? Captain Captain Marvel. Oh, I didn't see that. He plays an Australian alien in that. Yeah. Really? He's talking- That's good. He's talking just like the Mendelssohn, like, mate, mate. As if he's got a cigarette hanging out of his mouth holding a mullet. (laughs) He doesn't. Like that fish. But he has like the kind of like- droopy lower lip, like the Stallone lip, and just is totally wow. casual Aussie. In the same way that Tahika Waititi. Taika Waititi? Oh, <laughs> I got Jesus, that totally man, mixed up. That's, uh, uh. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't culturally insensitive. It was just mixing around my vowels. Sure. He plays a, you know, laid-back Kiwi-speaking, Kiwi-accented rock man in Thor Ragnarok. So it was the same sort of idea, basically. Oh, okay. Maybe I'll have to check out Captain's Marvel. So, and then I hadn't seen 2012 myself. So, but you had, and you had mistaken half of the day after tomorrow for 2012. So I'm thinking that perhaps that might actually win. (laughs) Well, yeah. Although I I totally forgotten that Tom McCarthy gets squashed in the gears, which I thought was a terrible moment in the film, but funny for me at the time. So. (laughs) All right. Um, Almost our last award, the Die Hard Award, named after the influence of Die Hard and inspiring a subgenre of very similar ideas. So Imitation is the ultimate flattery. Did either of these movies leave a legacy by inspiring a crop of clones? Can you think of the rise of apocalyptic movies since knowing in 2012? Well, I guess neither of these movies invented the disaster film, did they? Not only do they not invent it, but often some of the ideas about an arc, like a modern arc, are ripped off from more recent films like Deep Impact. So I'd say that these films are more imitators rather than inspirations. True, although I suppose at least knowing has 
although it didn't uh, inspire ripoffs, at least its total destruction of the world feels a little bit more fresh than just a kind of, you know, uh, half measure. Yeah, I agree with that. I agree with that. You know, did it inspire melancholia? Probably not, though. <laughs> okay, it's come to that time of the podcast. The Milking the Speed Cow Dry Award, named after the infamous sequel Speed 2, which took the high stakes of Speed 1 and relocated it to a sluggish cruise ship. So, Gabe, imagine this. Let's say there's an opportunity to make a sequel to Knowing or 2012. Now, they're both about a man trying to keep his family safe when the prophecy about the Earth being destroyed by solar flares becomes real. So, how do we make a sequel to The Apocalypse? Which film do we make a sequel to and what's our pitch to make it? Now, we're sitting here. These Hollywood executives are looking at us right now. Pitch away. Go for it. Okay, so do we want a movie about two children finding love and companionship and then breeding on some weird angelic alien planet a la Blue Lagoon? Can I stop you there? Okay. Blue Lagoon 2 was not considered a smash. Okay, fair. And that is essentially the similarity here. So I think we can take lessons from the past and assume that taking an apocalyptic film and then making it a love story about awkward teenagers probably is not going to capture the same audience as the first film. No, no. I mean, when the only drama is how long till they eat those rabbits, uh, who gives a shit? So I guess maybe a more interesting one is what? We've got the, the giant arcs floating around at the end of 2012. You know, we could do something with that. Yeah, I feel like 2012 is more open to a sequel than Knowing. Knowing they destroyed the Earth and we have to leave Earth to tell a new story. If we did, it'd be basically something like The Martian, where we have these characters surviving a new world perhaps or something like one of those alien sequels like Alien Prometheus or something. Yeah, yeah. Though I don't really believe that those two kids can science the shit out of anything. Yeah, I don't imagine those kids taking rabbit poo in their own poo and growing potatoes. So uh, They just smear it on each other. That leaves us with 2012. Now, 2012 made more money around the world, so I'm thinking that the studio executive across the table is looking at us and nodding his head and seeing dollar signs flashing before his or her eyes. So I reckon with the money that was made by 2012, with a cast we'd probably get back and with an ending that's at least open for a sequel, we're looking at something like what happens next with the arcs. Do we have a film which is about the beginning of a new civilization, or do we make this film like a modern version of Titanic? Oh, yeah, that's interesting. Um, Well, okay, so... We have multiple, multiple arcs, right? You could certainly have some sort of bad guy arc, perhaps an arc that was overthrown by pirate-type people or something, so you could have some sort of, like, evil arc and a good arc. Well, every uh, major apocalyptic movie is about people who stick to their ideals of the old world and want to preserve um, civility. And then there are people who were once perhaps the downtrodden, the people who weren't leaders in the previous world, who become the leaders slash villains of the new world. I think if TV shows like The Walking Dead or any movie which involves, which involves zombies. So we could basically have essentially the hoity-toity upper class 
who are literally metaphorically on the upper decks of the Ark in 2012, they can be taken down by the lower class and becomes an internal zombie-like film on one ship, right? Right. Or we could have the ships going against each other. Mm-hmm. That's an option. Mm-hmm. So essentially like one ship is overcome by baddies, one ship is kept by goodies and somehow they have to fight each other. Like a classic pirate movie where they, you know, fire cannons from across and it's like a chase movie of some sort where the pirates are trying to capture the good ship. Uh-huh. That's an option. Or maybe it's a film of survival where we have all these people stuck on one boat. They're the last of humanity. Okay, what about this? And something like a virus or a pandemic or something starts infecting the boat. Okay, but what about if the water's never subsided and the movie is called like 3012 and we pick up a 1,000 years later, like what has happened aboard these arcs? Like what, what, how have they adapted to a world of just, how have they adapted to a water world? I was going to say, so basically we've created a new cinema universe where the much maligned and unprofitable Waterworld becomes our metaphorical sequel. Is that what you're thinking? Waterworld was fucking great. Well, Waterworld was inspired by the Mad Max films, which were fantastic. Waterworld came before the fourth Mad Max film, Mad Max Fury Road, and that film was loved. So there's a lot of love left for Mad Max. Not so much love left for Waterworld. We could pitch to the studio that we'll get Waterworld right this time. Right. So maybe the characters won't grow gills like Kevin Costner's character called the Marina, uh, but I, I guess it could be a post-apocalyptic Mad Max on water and we just never speak of this film called Waterworld. Yeah, fair. Um, I mean, we could also do something around that idea we discussed earlier, which is... Ha- uh, having Chiwetel Ejiofor's character let all of these additional people on, it could be a movie that's essentially about the moral choices around resource management. So maybe it was set six months later or something and they're starting to run out of food. It could be like uh, that film set in the Andes, Alive. At what point do they start eating each other? Now, I'm not talking it's just like an exploitative cannibal movie. It's a, it's a, it's an, uh, a, a interesting... Uh, Hmm, I'm steepling my fingers as I say this, sort of treatise on the morality of cannibalism. Yeah, I like that. I mean, in some ways, that film Snowpiercer is that, essentially, where you have different classes and different carriages, and we see the classes fighting in that film Titanic, James Cameron's film. So I suppose we could have The Uprising, and in some ways, Chiwetel from the first film, 2012, gets his comeuppance by being so idealistic, he discovers that, guess what? If you bring on 3,000 extra people who haven't been vetted and we don't have the resources on this boat to look after them for the next, you know, six months or so, maybe it wasn't such a great idea as idealistic as it was. Yeah, that's right. The, uh, the, the, the road to hell is paved with good intentions and this, uh, this boat is going straight to hell. So do we cast the same actors or do we just sort of follow a different cast of actors on one of the other arcs which is featured in the movie 2012? No, I think it'd be interesting to use these actors and uh, build off the decisions they had made in this movie. We just kind of ditch the disaster porn aspect of it, set it in one location, the boat. We can do it much more cheaply that way. And, uh, you know, we're spending money on the on the actors. Maybe 
maybe we get Cusack back and Amanda Peet, maybe not, who really cares? Um, but, you know, I think there's, uh, there's, there's some interesting, there's some interesting uh, conversations and choices these characters could be having uh, with some quite tragic tragic results and new heroes will rise. All right, so I like it. Uh, the studio executive is nodding his or her head at us. That's a great sign. Because it's cheap. How about this? Okay. Just when we're about to have the ultimate fight between Chiwetel on the goodie side and perhaps this sort of downtrodden character who's become the unofficial leader of the minority that's run out of water because as what's ha- as what's ha- as happened over the last few weeks or months of this on this arc they had to start rationing food and water and so the downtrodden start working their way up to the upper deck oh, I like it and just when it appears it's going to be a fight in the true spirit of a disaster film something else brings them together I like it. and what it is it's a giant squid oh okay <laughs> or something deep from the maritana maritrana maritrana the trench. What's the trench called? Mariana? Mariana. The Mariana. The Mariana Trench. Okay. With all the Earth's crust changing, those creatures, the almost his, the prehistoric dinosaur-like giant sea creatures, have come higher up into the aquatic atmosphere and they have to all come together to try and overcome this new Disaster. So you're sort of mashing 2012 with Deep Rising or Cthulhu or something. But what if it was just another arc full of worser people, you know, uh, full of pirate type people? That way we can, you know, we don't have to spend the the big the big uh, buckaroos on uh, giant octopuses or mermen or whatnot. So what if it's Woody Harrelson's estranged son, <laughs> yeah, yes. who is now seeking to try? Woody Harrelson died in 2012. He was considered a bit of a nut job. What if his son was actually, you know, a big fan of his dad's work? And we never saw the son in the first movie, but the son now is wants to kind of like seek vengeance for his father, you know, not being taken seriously. And the son has somehow taken over one of the other arcs, which is now a pirate arc, and they're going to raid the good guy's arc. And so now we've got basically a pirate movie and – like, or, a, or like a zombie-type movie like The Walking Dead where you've got the- Survival film, sure. The competing gangs. And so our guys have to put aside their differences and realise, you know what, we're all human. And we have to overcome the bad, badder humans in the other boat. Totally. I think you save maybe your um, your your deep rising uh, twist for maybe an after-credits uh, sequence teasing a third film. Oh, good. Or- that could be the Dax Machina, where just as about as the the pirate is about to take down our guy Chiwetel, a giant tentacle wraps around his foot. Right, right. Okay, I like it. I like it. All right. Okay. So how does our film end? What is the actual ending of our film? The goodies win. <laughs> yeah. Well, I suppose enough of them get killed off in the boat that they no longer have the the. It sort of solves their moral quandary around food shortages, doesn't it? So the lesson learned, ironically, is that the baddie was right. Into actually, yeah. The, the lessons is when it gets really, really bad, there'll probably be some sort of Deus Ex Machina pirates that'll solve your problem for you. All right, but that's that's Hollywood, baby. All right, I think the executive is going to give us the green light, but we need a captivating title. What are we going to call our sequel? Fish sticks. <laughs> Fish sticks. <laughs> Fish sticks is the sequel to 2012. No, no, it's not. That's a terrible title. Uh-huh. Do we call it 2013? Yeah. But now it's quite dated. <laughs> no, nothing makes me want to see a movie like uh, uh, thir- 20, 
2032. Uh, you know what? The film was set in real time. Our same cast has come back. We just call it 2022. Still kicking. 20, sure. Electric Boogaloo, why not? You, what if it was called 201222? Two, two, two. Wait, how many twos? doesn't really work, does it? It could be just called 2012 The New World. Yeah, I guess so. Or, yeah, hmm, interesting. Okay, we'll call it that. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is how we make a sequel to the Roland Emmerich disaster porn movie 2012. Mm. Mm. I feel we could do a better title, but we'll leave it with that for now. We can, we, we, you know, we'll do a bunch of lines of cocaine with these execs or whatever and figure something out. <laughs> All right. Okay, that brings us to the end of the show and the end of the antics. Big thanks to our awesome sound designer, Sam Haywood, for making this episode sound so good. Gabe, where can listeners find more of your work and musings this week? Uh, at Gabe Dowrick, there is all of my um, uh, backyard topery that I've been working on. That's on the Twitterverse, and you can find me. I'm at Ben Phelps on Twitter and Instagram and youtube.com slash Ben Phelps. And you can find my podcasts, including twin movies, in the usual places like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and the new Apple Google Podcasts app. All right. Thank you for listening, folks, and we really hope you enjoyed the show and we love your support. Thanks for uh, sharing your good vibes and if this has helped your quarantining in any way, that is awesome. So take care, stay healthy, stay safe, and stay tuned for another Twin Movies battle very soon. See you, Gabe. Bye, Ben. Bye.